Hello, welcome to Mindful, the podcast of the Canadian Psychological Association. My name is Eric Bowman. I'm the communications person at the CPA, and this season we're bringing you the perspectives of many eminent Canadian psychologists when it comes to the pandemic, the winter, and what is basically a second lockdown. It's a stressful time for many, but for some it's doubly stressful because there is, in a sense, a double pandemic. COVID-19 dominates the news to this day, but right after it, in the headlines, is this ongoing fight for racial justice in the United States, Canada, and globally. To talk about these dual crises, I reached out to the University of Windsor to speak to Dr. Ben C.H. Quo. My name is Ben C.H. Quo. I am a full professor of clinical psychology at the University of Windsor, and I'm also a practicing psychologist in the province of Ontario. My main areas of research, we're really looking at the relationship between culture and uh, psychology, particularly uh, culture's impact on stress coping, uh, health-seeking, mental health with culturally diverse population. And I teach, I supervise, and I also uh, lecture and, and international. Well, terrific. And it's that cultural diversity that I wanted to talk to you about today. Mostly because, I mean, we're six months into this pandemic, into the lockdown, and added to that stress is this incredible culture clash that's going on throughout North America, especially, and around the world. And so I'm wondering, going into the winter, people from different cultures, new Canadians, uh, people of color, are going to have an extra stressor on top of this pandemic to deal with. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to that. What are the extra stresses and how are people dealing with that? Yeah, you know, for one thing uh, that has really become apparent over the last six months is this increased level of uh, xenophobia particularly racism, overt kind of racism that came out against people of color in the States as well as in Canada. And uh, one example is what happened in Vancouver and some of the major cities uh, across our country here in Canada. So in Vancouver, for example, we have seen, according to the stats of, of Vancouver police, that there's 600% of increase in terms of racial-based race incidents against particularly Asian Canadians uh, as a result of this pandemic, right? So um, that includes people who have been, you know, heard of slurs, set on graffitis and many things. So we are seeing this added stress in, on top of the, the health concerns, the infection of uh, the divisiveness and people's negative attitude, this kind of otherness, uh, wanting to point fingers on blames or uh, the cause of the, the pandemic on certain groups. So these issues really add on to all the other uh, concerns, health concerns, and economic concerns that already exist that comes with the pandemic. So um, many of Black Indigenous people and um, people uh, Indigenous people and people of color have to deal with these additional race-based uh, stressors. I I can't imagine how difficult that must be to add that stress onto the one that all the rest of us are also feeling. But what are some of the the coping strategies that you advise uh, for people of color who do have that? extra level of stress and certainly uh, are seeing it in the media day after day after day. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's not an easy task, I have to say. It's, it's very challenging because there's so many unknowns that we, we all have to deal with. But 
in the case of the uh, people of color, I think it's important to understand that in a time of unknowns, we need to cope by drawing upon our you know resilience, our ability to uh, tap into the resources we already have. So one of the things I I would suggest people in dealing with race-based issues is to recognize that that racism exists both at the personal level, group level, and systemic structural levels. So the, the, one of the, the difficult challenges, according to uh, based on uh, encounter with stress, we know from research and clinical practice is this idea of racism that seems uh, what we call microaggression. So people have difficulty to go put their fingers on, is this something against me, my group, based on my skin color, my characteristic, my religion, whatever the case might be. And that becomes very stressful when the situation is ambiguous. You, you're not able to confront it. So one of the coping strategies is to recognize that those instances, those uh, racism uh, acts do exist, and they are what they are. Now, we need to confront them, call them out, or deal with them. And this will help people of color to, to not blame themselves for what happened to them. So that's very important. So, uh, so is, is what you're saying then that if you perceive something to be racist, if you perceive it to be a microaggression, then it is what you perceive it to be? Right. Trust your instincts. You know, I think many people, uh, particularly new immigrants, I think their uh, sense of politeness, right, to say, well, I think that's what happened, but uh, maybe not, and talk themselves out of this, and yet feeling hurt, deeply hurt, and kind of brewing inside. So, yes, I, the strategy is to see and go with your instincts. If that is something that is unjust, inappropriate, recognize it as it is something, an unfair treatment of oneself. And with that, then we can sort of act on it. When it's not, it's unclear, we don't know what to do with it. And so some sort of certainty and standing against uh, those uh, racist incidents or stores, whatever the situation is, allows us to decide what to do next. And you, yeah. were, you were talking about the incidents that were taking place in Vancouver. Um, there was one here in Ottawa recently, and it really sort of drove home to me the idea of the sort of confluence of the pandemic and racism, uh, where there's a huge Asian superstore here in Ottawa in the Barhaven area, and somebody went in, refused to wear a mask, and the whole thing escalated into an extremely racist, overtly racist uh, tirade where, you know, tons of people ended up getting involved. It was a terrible scene. And you would think that the Asian superstore is a safe place to go and shop. I'm wondering if people of color in this circumstance, in this uh, situation that we find ourselves in now, are anxious, more anxious, leaving the house to run errands, to just do grocery shopping like all of us have to do. Yeah, absolutely. And we hear these incidents that are occurring. And so people of color have good reason to be guarded, to feel threatened. And again, that is reality. So I think um, it, it does make us feel like we are more vulnerable because of what we are seeing um, in, across the country, right? And I think it's important for us to understand that these 
kind of xenophobic, racist attitude has always been there. So in some way, it's not surprising these kind of things uh, happen, sadly. But it is shocking. It is still totally unacceptable. But I think what happened is, is the pandemic allows people, kind of gives certain people feeling this, you know, their frustration, whether it's pandemic fatigue, uh, to to find some sort of outlet. And we know that people tend to want to attribute situations that they have no control with to some causes, and oftentimes unjustified causes. And so I think that's what we're seeing. But I think what we're seeing uh, with what you described in the Asian uh, supermarket, it really is a reflection of the entrenched and deeply uh, seated racism that has always been with us. It just, it's kind of under the surface in many cases when things seem to be okay. And when Canadians, we as our as a country see ourselves as multicultural, we're not like our U.S. neighbors. Yet I think what has brought up to our attention is that, you know, in many ways we're not that better off in terms of uh, having these kind of attitudes still exist within within our society. I'm wondering, though, uh, you know, there's a lot, of course, there's stress brought on by the pandemic and people lash out in ways that maybe they wouldn't have before. But there's also a cultural shift that's taken place, uh, specifically in the United States, where right from the top, this sort of racism is not just enabled or winked to, but actively spoken from the pulpit of the president, which then gives license to people in the U.S. to hold demonstrations in favor of these racist ideas, which then spills over into Canada. And I'm wondering if, I I guess one isn't more of a cause than the other, but just the two things happening at the same time, uh, if if that's... um, I'm not quite yeah. sure where I'm going with this, but uh, right, is, right. you know, the one thing seemed to precede the other, right? We were already heading in this direction when the pandemic hit. And, yeah. you know, I, I'm wondering if had that not occurred first, if the pandemic would have brought it out as much as it has. Well, you, you know, I think, I think there are three factors. One, the racism, the systemic racism, anti-black attitude and anti-indigenous uh, uh, color, uh, people of color, and other uh, groups are always there, right? And so that's an epidemic. Uh, we, some people call that that exists in our society. It's that, and then with the pandemic, plus this leadership, and we're not only talking about political leadership, but also, uh, you know, these these celebrities who are speaking in a way, in a racist way, as to the field to the fire, in a way giving the public the permission to say it's okay to say these things. And I think it's the combination of these factors kind of coming all together that brought about where we are right now. And of course, with the police brutality, we see uh, George Floyd's death and Brandon Taylor. All these factors kind of come together. This is sort of like a perfect storm, right? And yes, the leadership in the past, we have seen people who perhaps have racist attitudes but are quiet. 
but now we have seen leadership who are speaking up in a racist way, and that really fanned the fire and give people again to say, "Well, that then is it okay?" So that I think I think it's all those factors that are coming together at this very time in our history that bring forth the 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 sort of the crisis that we're seeing. Uh, and you mentioned Breonna Taylor, and uh, we're talking now just a few days after uh, the grand jury in Louisville decided that they were not going to charge any of the officers involved in her shooting with her shooting. And I remember thinking, as I was watching the news earlier that day, that the people in charge in Louisville were bracing for riots that evening because they knew that whatever came out of that grand jury was not going to be sufficient, that it, that they were not going to charge these police officers. And so I think maybe that goes to what you're talking about. All the people in power who are making these decisions understand as a foregone conclusion that they're going to make the wrong ones. Out of their interest in the, the hurricane will arrive and the roof is going to collapse even before the, the decision was made, right? They knew that bad, uh, bad news will be coming. Yeah, you know, early point uh, you have raised about what can people do. And I think, um, you know, if you watch the news nowadays, what is really interesting, I think, for one of the helpful aspects to me and what encourages me is in a time where things feel so uh, hopeless and helpless, right? And when the tension is, seems to be escalating, not be escalating, what do we do to be to be hopeful? To continue on with the the fight or the the, the, the journey, you know, I think about uh, one of the suggestions I I would ask people to be thinking about is think about the recent role models we have. So in the case of Ruth Bader uh, Ginsburg, the justice Supreme Court justice in the state, who just passed away recently, we remember the House Representative uh, John Lewis, who was involved in the uh, civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for the black indigenous and people of color to remember that about the history and, and the story of these giants. I can imagine these individual, Justice Ginsburg and John Lewis, having sort of, I'm sure they've struggled many, many of the challenges we're currently facing. And I believe there are many times where it feels like uh, they're going against the odds and nothing is happening about 30, 40 years later. And here we are seeing changes that brought about with their insistence, right? And so the changes in terms of racial attitude, interracial relationship, injustice in society happens so slow and incrementally. And sometimes it feels like, you know, three steps back, forward, one step back, that sort of thing, right? So that kind of analogy. So I think what I would suggest in, in times of, of uh, like this, to be looking at those fighters, those justice uh, leaders, those giants, and I think they, they give us lessons and inspiration. So even though it, looked, it feels like we're going backwards at an incredibly quick pace, that at some point that will turn around and with a collective effort we'll get ahead of where we were when this all started. Is is that basically the contention? Just look at the examples, right? Mm-hmm. And those who went before us and they struggled through and they came through and now we are living, you know, we are beneficiaries of their contributions 
And so uh, in a struggle like this, to think about what we're doing today may not see any immediate results. Again, sometimes the situation looks worse, but be reminded that perhaps a generation later, a few decades later, what we do now, uh, looking back, people will say, I'm glad you did that, okay, even though it seemed helpless at the time. And so what would you what would you suggest those actions be that we do now uh, so that we can feel like, you know, generations from now we contributed contributed in some way that we advanced this conversation, that we stood up in favor of progress? Yeah, you know, interesting. When we talk about the pandemic, I mean, the word social distancing, those social distancing keep coming up, right? We, we it, it basically, I think, is better than the physical distancing. We should be physically distancing from other people because of the infection, right? But not really socially uh, distancing. We should actually connecting, as we always do, or even more during the pandemic because of the isolation. So the point, again, you know, bringing that to dealing with the current anti-racist movement is that I think we need to join with our, it has solidarity with people who shared some values, beliefs, allies for people of color to uh, identify those allies, those friends, right? And to be able to draw support, understanding from those individuals. And so in a time when it feels very isolating, I think that's a time when we need to see that, no, there are communities out there that are sort of on, on the same course with us. I think that gives us strength to be able to kind of move forward. And I think that's very important. So that's part of, I think, the resilience of people of color is that the, the collectivism, right, in many, many cultures outside of uh, Western cultures, that sense of family, the, the connection with other in the group and drawing upon you know, strength from other people, uh, oftentimes is, is diminished in a Western individualist society. I think we should encourage people to go back to their groups, relationship. You know, I find relationship and communications are very important to, to strengthen us. Mm-hmm. So do that with people that you can share and can trust who believe in the same cause are very important. So you specifically try to to balance this yourself, and I imagine that's one challenge uh, during this pandemic. How else is how else has the pandemic changed life for you uh, as a professor at Western University, as a psychologist? I mean, there are so many things that can be affected in different ways. Oh, a lot. I think speaking from a uh, perspective of a. Um, university professor, right? With the, the pandemic, everything going online right now, the whole idea of pedagogy, how do you teach, and uh, it's completely, it's, it's revolutionary, right? Now I have to think about what technology will allow me to do and what it wouldn't allow me to do, right? So the way I teach, the way I communicate, the way I schedule uh, my teaching has changed. It's very hard for me at this point to say what are the advantages and disadvantages because I feel like, you know, this message just started. I'm still feeling my way into this, this uh, I call online ecology or ecosystem here. Right. Um, and so I'm kind of still feeling my way, but checking my students. So 
that changes my the time I spend behind screen, obviously, and the training and upgrading of uh, keeping up with the te technology. And, and also, at the same time, try to push the envelope within the parameter limitation of the technology. What more can I do to make it effective, more, more engaging with students? So that's the one big change for me. And it hasn't been easy, I have to admit. Uh, and, and I'm trying my best to monitor students, uh, how they feel uh, on the other side of the, the screen. Mm -hmm. And it's hard. Uh, some students has, you know, yesterday I was teaching a, a course for two hours, and some of the students told me that they, they already had five-hour classes online prior to meeting with me. And then, um, so I have to really monitor. I don't see their nonverbals oftentimes, uh, as in a physical setting with them. So I really have to check in often and take breaks more often. So yeah. that changed uh, my 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 teaching aspect, and as a, as a psychologist, as a practicing psychologist, over the couple of months, the past few months, I have received more requests for therapy uh, in my private practice. And again, it has to be done through um, teletherapy, telepsychology, and uh, it takes some getting used to with that process. Some clients are desperately wanting to have that first face-to-face uh, -face contact, but you know, with the, the health regulation, it's very difficult. So again, having to find ways to connect and not be able to, to actually see them uh, in person. So many, changed, many things have changed in terms of professionally for me um, as a professor. And it seems as though, uh, you know, over the course of six months, people are getting a little more comfortable with the, you know, teletherapy and being able to do it virtually and remotely. And it seems as though in many circumstances it's working just as well. Others still have to iron out some of the bugs. Uh, but one thing I'm hearing a lot and relating to the discussion that we're having about uh, people of color and, and dealing with racism pan and the pandemic and dual crises is that there are very few mental health professionals who are people of color, who can speak to those uh, people having, having a shared experience with them. And that's seems to be quite a large issue at the moment and uh, just brought to the fore because of this uh, dual crises that we're facing. Uh, what do you think we can do about that? Well, I think um, it takes multi-pronged approaches to, to actually deal with this perennial issues of lack of people of color in mental health um, professions, including psychology. At one level, I think what is interesting is that based on my research and my students' research, we currently don't have data within the major professional organizations related to mental health, including CPA or the College of Psychologists in Ontario or College of Registered uh, Psychotherapists in Ontario about the racial demographic backgrounds and ethnicities of many of our, uh, most of our members. So there, there isn't a clear, uh, almost database about who they are and how many are they. I think the closest data I can cross is like 31% of members in the College of Registered Psychotherapists in Ontario speaks um, a language other than English. And I, I'm guessing that a lot of the uh, proportion um, of those individuals speaks French. And English so Presumably, we don't really yeah. know yeah yeah 
So we don't really have a, a automatic ways of knowing who our mental health professional who are of uh, color. So I think that's one strategy. We need to have some sort of database so we can access and know who they are. And I think the second step is with that data, we can, including CPAs, have some sort of a network coalition of these mental health professionals uh, who are members of, uh, you know, from background of, of colors. And then for these professionals to be able to exchange through conferences, roundtables, symposium, and, you know, comes with some sort of uh, resource sharing. Not only for the larger community, the larger profession, but also as a support for each other. And it will be good for uh, client referrals, knowing different expertise areas and uh, live uh, experiences of different um, service of um, color. And so with that sort of um, coalition or network, then we can begin to build uh, our understanding and resources. And the other problem that I'm thinking about, you know, as a clinical psychology professor who is actively engaging in multicultural training is I think we need to recruit more actively people of color into this profession. I know we've been talking about this for a long time. Uh, mm -hmm. APA has been talking about this. It has not been easy because I think part of the reason is the system is not very receptive to encourage, nurture, and recruit a student of color into uh, our professions and also uh, retaining them. So I think we need to continue to do that uh, actively, Blacks, Indigenous, and, and other people of color with, you know, immigrants, refugee backgrounds, and diversity, back, uh, background diversity into the profession. Dr. Ben C.H. Kuo, Professor of Clinical Psychology at the University of Windsor. Thank you, Dr. Kuo, for taking the time to speak with us about this important subject. And here's hoping we turn the corner soon on all of it. Tomorrow, we continue our journey across Canada. For no good reason at all, I've scheduled these podcasts to be released geographically. Now, we began with Dr. Janine Hubbard in Newfoundland. We've talked to Dr. Kuo in Windsor. And tomorrow, we move on to Regina. We'll see you then.